The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only and are not to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Today on The Lab Report, we're going to talk Multiomic Series Part 2. This is the sequel? We made it, people. Part 2, Electric Bugaloo? I didn't think we were going to do it, but we're going to do it. (laughs) The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to the Lab Report. not a tick <laughs> they're all it's ticks. a tell it's a tell if it's me it's they're like all poker. ticks hello <laughs> i'm michael chapman how's it going patty devers you know just living my best life today wow yeah that good, is something good day. yeah well done thanks and well done to all of you for joining us welcome to the lab reports welcome to this podcast mm-hmm. brought to you by genova diagnostics where we talk about functional medicine specialty lab testing Integrative Therapeutics and uh, Multi-Omics Series Part 2. I thought you were going to say in the like. That's you part of the like. That. The you, like is all-encompassing. You like Multi-Omics, I take it. I do like them. Well, if you also like Multi-Omics, you should go to iTunes, Spotify, and subscribe to this podcast. Yeah, you should do that. Yeah, download, rate, review, feedback. We like it. If you have feedback... Make some up. To, well, yeah, or, or if you don't, <laughs> make some up. And send it to us, podcast at gdx.net. That's the email address that you can reach us. That's right. Send your questions of the day. Yeah, we can't wait to hear the jingle again. <laughs> We're going to get to it today. Okay. No more fooling around. Well, you're talking about part two. Today's a part tour. Yes. Look, look at us. Multiomic series part Growing two. Growing up as a show, evolving, <laughs> planning ahead. That's part of it too. Well, it's a sequel. So I think the question is, what? are we going to talk about? What's the sequel to part one, which was COMT? Yeah. Go back and review. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when we're thinking about multi-omics, right, Mm -hmm. we have to do some combination of genetics and phenomics, phenotypic markers. Uh, So, you know, we have all these different genetic SNPs. I think we should probably talk about another one of those and how it relates to some of the metabolites that we test for as well and how you can get a different multi-omics assessment. Well, then how are we going to pick one because there's you know millions oh, in our see, bodies how do we pick just one i'm so glad that you asked Uh-oh. that so i was up late last night putting this Uh-oh. little thing together let me get it out from under the desk here it's um yeah so um yeah it's a wow. wheel what do you think uh, i love it did you make this in I your did, garage i did and okay. i put all the names of these different snips that we had that we test for on there hmm. Um, it's very what do you colorful. Think? Yeah, it's nice looking, huh? Very artistic. So I figured this is a good way to figure out what to do with the, the multiomics, what we can talk about. Well, let's spin Since that Since we're thing. doing a series, I mean, there's there's like 14 different <sighs> wedges on here. So I let's don't know how many of these episodes we were planning on doing, but... Spin it. Right. Round okay, and round we go. What do, you, what do you think? Oh. Oh, MTHFR. Oh, how about that? That's amazing. Come on. How, really? I mean... It mustn't. Uh, that's wild, huh? <laughs> well, okay, so let me ask you this, Patty. All right. Word association. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the letters M T H F R? Chocolate chip cookies. Mmm, delicious. 
What's the next thing that comes to your mind? Mm, methylation? Yeah. 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 Why? What what's what is that? What is that word that you just said? Methylation Explain is Explain it to the people. The people? Yeah. Well, methylation at its core is really just taking a little molecule, a methyl group, which is a carbon and some hydrogens, and donating it from one molecule to another molecule. And when something accepts a methyl group, it changes its structure and function. And cool. it's important. Cool. I've heard it referred to as a biochemical game of hot potato. That's exactly what it is. And all these little methyl groups bouncing around and around and around. Why do we care about it? That's a good question. Thanks. What does it do? What, what, what doesn't it do? I don't know. Well, we, sh- we should talk about it. Methylation happens billions of times per second all over your body. Okay. And if we can remind the audience of the Michael Chapman biochemical proverb. Yeah, this is in my upcoming book, Biochemical mm-hmm. Proverbs, um, that I'm working on, <laughs> set to release in 2024. And um, the thing about methylation or any reaction really is that this this reaction is not all that special in and of itself. <gasps> what makes it special is how often it's mm. used in the body. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So the, uh, that's, that's the thing about methylation. That's so interesting. So how is it used? How often is it used? What is it used for in the body, Patty? Well, just that little donation of the methyl group, the biochemical hot potato, as you described it. Yeah. It does so many critical things in our body, like makes DNA and RNA. It regulates your genes and epigenetics. It makes creatine, so your skeletal muscles contract. Important. Yeah. It's important for hormone detox and just general detoxification. It repairs cell membranes. It makes and breaks down neurotransmitters. It aids in vascular endothelial function. Wow. That's all. Fat metabolism. Nerve myelination. It's kind of important. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. Kind of. And so. So everything. Okay. So if it does everything. Yeah. Then we should probably be a little bit concerned about it. We We should should probably think about it. Yeah. Because you don't want to not do those things. Right. There's a lot of those things that are critically important. It's just generally keep you alive. Right. Mm hmm. So, and some of them are going to relate to cancer risk. I'm thinking hormone detoxification in uh, particular. Yep, yep, yep. Um, And, of course, like epigenetic regulation, mm-hmm. DNA synthesis and repair, all that sort of stuff. So, um, that's good to know. <laughs> From there, what in the world does MTHFR have to do with anything? I know. We, we're talking about methylation and then... I thought we were talking about MTHFR. We spun a wheel. I don't know. What's going on here? <laughs> well, what does MTHFR stand for? 510-methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase. God bless you. <laughs> so it's an enzyme, right? ASE. We know this. Oh, ends in ASE. Correct. For those of you who didn't follow that uh, little codified language there. That's right. If it ends in ASE, it's an enzyme. Hmm. That's how you always know. Yeah. Reductase. Right. right. So... Yes, it's an enzyme. What does this what does this enzyme do? What does this particular enzyme do? <laughs> well, it takes dietary folate okay. and it activates it and gets it ready and commits it to be used in the methylation cycle. So like folate is a B vitamin, right? Yeah, B9. It's found in our diet. So you can get it from things like dark green leafy vegetables and various meats. But important to note is that there's a lot of different forms of folate in your diet. Ah. Some are more bioavailable and active. Some are inactive. 
But once you digest your food and you have dietary folate, you need to switch it from the inactive form to the active form in order to be used. Mm-hmm. And you know, really just changing its chemical structure so it's more readily used in something like the methylation cycle. Got it. So this active folate um, mm-hmm. is typically what we often call 5-methyltetrahydrofolate, 5-MTHF. And that is the end product of this MTHFR reaction. Oh, it's all starting to come together now. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So so we're getting there. I know there's an interplay here with methylation, and we just talked about how this enzyme works to activate folate to be used there. Okay. So if the MTHFR enzyme creates MTHF... Active folate. Active folate, um, then... What happens if there's a problem with the enzyme? And by this, I mean, if you're evaluating for a genetic SNP, we're looking for problems in the enzyme or a variant that might cause the enzyme to be slower. Again, I think it's important if you need to be kept up to speed, you can go back and listen to our SNPology 101 episode Mm -hmm. where we discuss how the gene codes for a protein and can change a protein or an enzyme. And so if there's a variant in that genetic blueprint, like a SNP in MTHFR, it can change what's made, i.e. this particular enzyme. Right. Particular. Particular. And in the case of MTHFR, we check for two different locations, and when there's variants, it can actually slow the enzyme down. Right. And it's a good point that you brought up that we're checking for two different variants there. There's the 1298C and then the 677. Um, and those two locations uh, have different ramifications, right? Mm-hmm. If there's a SNP in the 677 location, that has more of a consequence, more right. severe consequence as compared to the 1298 location. Um, These are numbers that you don't have to necessarily memorize, but it does help you to know when you're comparing SNPs. And uh, if there are SNPs that you find in a genetic test, it's going to result in an enzyme that is predisposed to working slower. Why do I say it that way, Patty? Because our genes are not our destiny. And as we describe in these (laughs) multi-omic episodes, there's lots of layers between having a genetic code And phenotypic expression, there's a lot of variables that can alter whether or not it actually even is expressed. Right. So that all being said, whenever someone says they have an MTHFR SNP, it's important to know, number one, what location are we talking about? Right. What is the variant? Right. Because if it's a heterozygous of 1298, it really doesn't have much effect at all. Right. So these are important facts to take into consideration when someone says MTHFR. Right. And in general... The more SNPs that you find on a genetic test, the greater the severity of effect. So the slower the enzyme is going to work. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the day, if you're doing an evaluation for MTHFR, mm-hmm. what you're looking for is how well the body is predisposed to take your folates from the diet and turn it into active folate. And if you find a bunch of SNPs there, uh, then that's going to result in a predisposition to a slower activation of folate from your diet which may or may not even be expressed. But the whole concept of us talking about multiomics is to take that genetic predisposition and let's layer the phenotypic expression and see if actually it's being expressed. So if I were to say to you, Michael, okay, I have a heterozygous SNP in MTHFR 667. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't know that I do, actually. Oh, never mind. And I I also have a heterozygous 
for 1298. And I said to you, okay, I want to layer some multiomics on here to see, you know, really what's going on in my body. What are some biomarkers you might think about to yeah. check? Yeah. Uh, the first one I'm thinking about is homocysteine. How come? Because homocysteine is then what takes that activated folate um. and turns into methionine. So that's, mm. that's what the activated folate is doing in a lot of cases. It is converting homocysteine, it's methylating homocysteine into methionine. So MTHFR sits right at that point where you need to get homocysteine back up to methionine. Yeah. So if that enzyme is working slower and you're not able to use activated folate to make that happen. You're going to have a backup. Of what? Homocysteine. That, exactly. Right. Yep. So that's kind of like when we were talking about organic acid, same thing. If you're going from one step to another step and there's a problem within that step, you can tell by that backup of yeah. homocysteine here. Yeah. And one clarification too, just to make the situation a little bit more complicated oh boy. is that if you have a high homocysteine, it could be the fact that there's a problem with availability of folate in mm -hmm. particular activated folate, like we've been talking about, but B12 is also involved in that reaction as well. So B12 could be playing a role in that elevated homocysteine also. Right. So not all homocysteine elevations are because of an MTHFR problem. Correct. A lot of variables there. And just because you have an MTHFR SNP, if you do, that doesn't mean you're going to have a high homocysteine, which is why we always say if you have genetic information, you want to look at the phenotypic information. Mm -hmm. You want to look at the biomarkers. And this is what multi-omics assessment is all about. Right. Because, again, you can't just take one piece of the information. You actually said this in the prior episode that it's like looking at the information with one eye closed. So you really need more information. Okay. Quick recap. Mm-hmm. MTHFR is an enzyme. Yes. Activates folate, mm -hmm. which is then used to remethylate homocysteine back into a molecule or an amino acid called methionine. Right. So if there's problems with activating folate and there's low levels of activated folate, you might have a backup of homocysteine. So what do we think about with higher levels of homocysteine. Well, just like we said, every elevation in homocysteine doesn't mean a problem with that particular enzyme because there's a lot of variables. But people mainly look at homocysteine as a cardiovascular risk factor, actually. Mm -hmm. They think it's kind of a bad actor. And a lot of people use homocysteine levels as a marker of methylation status. But we know that homocysteine is such a small piece of the entire methylation cycle. Yeah. It's interesting, too, that there's some associations around osteoporosis risk. There's mm -hmm. some associations around neurodegenerative conditions, behavioral conditions. So um, lots of interesting stuff around homocysteine elevations. And those are the same clinical associations that we tend to see with methylation issues too. So it does make sense in the literature that this is used as a surrogate marker for methylation status. And therefore the enzyme that tends to predispose somebody to having higher homocysteine levels also might correlate with a lot of those things that we associate with methylation dysfunction. That makes, makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And since we're talking about a multiomics approach to MTHFR, the question becomes, what are some other things that we can look at from a multiomics perspective? Mm -hmm. And Patty, what are the cofactors for the MTHFR enzyme? Oh, that's a great question. There's several different vitamins and minerals that are needed to make a lot of enzymes work, but specifically MTHFR, we think about vitamin B2 and B3. Yep. 
And in a lot of the previous podcasts, we were talking about a lot of our nutritional testing. Yeah. Things like the NutriVal or the Metabolomics Plus. Yeah. We measure a lot of things like organic acids, uh-huh. amino acids. And we had the whole conversation about how elevations in organic acids can speak to functional nutritional needs. And a lot of these organic acids require specific vitamins on a biochemical level to convert them. So elevations in various organic acids and or amino acids can also signify a need a functional need for vitamin B2 and B3. So those are also other places to look to see how you can optimize MTHFR. Yeah. So from a gene perspective, if somebody has some variants, you can try to compensate for those genetic variants by providing adequate levels of cofactors or even more than adequate levels of cofactors to try to push that enzyme a little bit faster. Um, And so you can look to some of the other nutritional testing to find any evidence of needs for B2, B3 cofactors, and then support there. Can I bring something else up? I guess. Uh, On one of our prior episodes, I believe it was the Metabolomics Plus, and we were talking about how sometimes if there's a SNP in an enzyme, you can give that end product. And so some people with MTHFR SNPs actually give that activated folate as uh, a supplement. This is a clinical question. It is. Mm, and so, you know, let me it, put my doctor hat it on. It sort of makes sense why they would do it, but is that always the best idea, Michael? Depends on who you ask. Well, what if I asked Michael Chapman? Oh, uh, okay. So, a lot of people supplement with 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate. And a lot of people have had benefit with that. Same as people have had benefit with supplementing with folic acid or Mm -hmm. folinic acid, um, trying to support any sort of dysfunction that's happening from a folate activation standpoint. Um, I think that that's an okay approach if somebody has higher homocysteine levels and you're trying to acutely lower those and you're concerned. I don't think that should be a strategy for long-term success. And my concern is that... methylation and the folate cycles are in such a relative balance with each other that if you are giving such a powerful substrate that is committed to the methylation cycle, and that's for a different podcast, but the 5-MTHF version is committed to the methylation cycle, um, then there's nowhere else for it to go other than to turn into more methylation products. And the other thing is that it has effects on other enzymes in the methylation cycle as well. And I'm getting a little heady here, but 5-MTHF actually prevents the disposal of excess methyl groups. So you're overwhelming the entire methylation cycle. You could theoretically be overwhelming the methylation cycle by supplementing, even with just you know, small amounts of 5-MTHF. So I think short-term strategy, sure, uh, I could see that, especially for homocysteine elevations. But down the road, I think it's better to correct for some of the uh, underlying concerns, whether that's needs for B2 or B3, which might just help the enzyme work a little bit better. Yeah. And thankfully, we have a profile called the methylation profile, which kind of measures all the steps throughout methylation, kind of tell you exactly where there's a backup, where there's a problem. You could also layer in the fact that we have the NutraVal and Metabolomics Plus to give us functional need for some of those cofactors. So a lot of different places you can look to optimize these systems. Oh, yeah, man. If you want a multi-omics <laughs> approach uh-huh. to MTHFR, the methylation panel here at Genova Diagnostics, that is... It's going to be your sauce. That's what you want. Oh, yeah. That's the jam. No, it's the sauce. Oh. 
Isn't jam a sauce? That's a good question. Thanks. Is jam a sauce? Hmm. Jam can't be a sauce. Could it be? No. What's a sauce? A sauce is something you heat in a skillet or... You can heat jelly. Yeah, but that's not how you serve it. Could. Jelly things, glaze it. No, no. Yeah. You have to refrigerate it into... So it forms the, the... stereotypical consistency. Let me get this straight. No such thing as a jelly sauce. That's You're taking that stance. We're talking about jam. We're not talking about jelly. But uh, the same rule applies. Hmm. You f- What's the difference between jam and jelly? Consistency. This is the whole, the, the very nature of what we're talking about, which is why it's hmm. not a sauce, because they're different consistencies. A sauce does not have a gelatinous consistency. And the difference between jam and jelly is the degree of gelatinicity. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm not going to be able to let this go, right? Right. I know <laughs> This that. needs to be solved. Yeah, I agree. This is this <laughs> high priority. I know. Yeah. Uh, so I guess we're going to have to Google it. Yay. Can't help but wonder what you're typing over there. It's almost there. Man, it's, it's just a lot of typing. Just trying to get the answer, sir. Okay, so... Jam is made from mashed fruit. Jelly is made from just the juice of the fruit. Sauce is made from mashed fruit, but uses less pectin than jam and is less gelled. Less gelled, right. Syrup. Different consistency. Yeah. Syrup is made from either mashed fruit or just the juice of the fruit, but uses even less pectin than sauce. Yeah. So it's slightly gelled and pourable. Yeah. It's even more sauce-like, right, than jam or jelly because it has less pectin, less less gelified. And sauce has virtually no pectin in it, right? So what we're getting it's at water. what we're getting at is the methylation profile is pretty awesome. That's right. So so far in this episode we've defined what MTHFR is. Yes. We talked about the SNP in MTHFR uh-huh. and layering the multiomics. We talked about how it interplays with the methylation cycle and how it might affect other nutritional tests. Covered a lot of ground. We certainly have. There's a lot of geography there. We certainly have. And I'll tell you that this is the point of the show where, you know, it's my favorite because it's time for question of the day. Oh. Question of the day. It's my favorite one. Okay. Question of the day. Go with the original, you know? Question of the day. That one hurts my ears. It's great. I'm not going to lie. It's great. So I'm going to ask you the question of the day, Michael Chapman. All right, I'm ready. So we spent all this time talking about MTHFR and the SNP. And, you know, when you're in the functional medicine space, it comes up a lot. It seems like it comes up a lot. So the question I have for you is, how common is it to have a SNP in MTHFR? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, Thank you for asking that, whoever you were out there. Really appreciate your feedback. Thanks for emailing podcast at gdx.net. It's mm-hmm. uh, awesome. And to answer that question, okay, I can start very simple in saying it's very common. It's mm-hmm. actually more common to have a SNP than to not have one. An MTHFR? Yes. That's shocking. Well, then why do Isn't people it? make such a big deal about it? That's a great question. Okay. Um, I don't know is the answer to this. It's something that we discovered. It has clinical associations. Mm-hmm. The more SNPs that you have, the more clinical associations you tend to see in the literature. So for example, with A1298C location, if somebody has a SNP, there's basically no 
effect to the enzyme activity if they have one. Hmm. If they have two, then you start to see clinical associations pop up. Not necessarily the same case for the C677T location, uh, where you tend to see even with one SNP, there's a effect to the enzyme action. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, over 50% of us have at least one SNP at the 1298 location and one SNP at the C677T location. So it begs Hmm. the question, why are we frightening people? Right about having an MTHFR SNP. Mm -hmm. Um, I can think of personally clinicians who have called in and say patient has MTHFR SNP. Should they reconsider procreation? Oh, come on now. Seriously. So (sighs) to put it in reference, this is a very, very common genetic alteration or polymorphism. And it does have enzyme activity, but this is the severity and the consequences are something that can be mitigated Mm -hmm. and we need to look at the SNPs in comparison to the populations that have them. And obviously this is not something that's incompatible with life, right? This is the majority If the majority of us have it. The majority of us are, are dealing with it and it's not, we're not falling dead of it. So we need to put this into context. Yes, there are clinical associations, but that helps you to determine the adequacy of your folate demand. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're talking about. That's what this whole episode has been about. And let's not overblow the clinical significance also. So is it true that it's a little bit less common to have homozygous positive for both? It is less common. Mm-hmm. And it's more clinically significant. Right. If you have three, four SNPs in the enzyme, yeah, you're going to want to focus more on this clinically. But if you have one, uh, if you have even what's called compound, where you have one at each location, you know, that's not uncommon to have. And it's not something that you should be (laughs) losing sleep over, I guess, is my point. So if you're a clinician and you're doing this sort of work, I would... I would ask that we we pump the brakes a little bit and we refrain from scaring people about having a polymorphism in MTHFR. And from throwing methylated vitamins at people unnecessarily, which Especially may have other if you, consequences. If you haven't run a homocysteine or you haven't gotten a SAM-SAW ratio, uh, if you have not determined what their actual methylation status is and you're just treating SNPs, A, stop. Wow. Stop doing it. <laughs> Right, yeah. because you're you're potentially creating more imbalance yep. by giving a supplement that is not needed, mm-hmm. especially giving more methyl group donors that are that could, in at the end of the day, slow down methylation reactions because methyl group donors in the form of SAM, SAMe, inhibit methylation reactions. You don't know what that's doing throughout the body. Wow, you're really passionate about SNPs, Michael. I love this stuff. <laughs> Next time on The Lab Report, we have on Dr. Tom Williams. Author, researcher, functional medicine genius. And a friend. Yeah. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.
ketchup is not tomato jam. No, it's a sauce, right? I guess because there's no pectin in it. Right, right. I love ketchup. It's gross. What? It's gross. It's not gross. It's too it's sweet. It's not that sweet. It's filled with sugar. There's as much sugar in ketchup as there is in a cookie. Well, I'll just eat the cookie then. 